As Cindy mentioned, we're working our way through a series on worship. That song, Awesome God, was written by Rich Mullins. One of the first concerts I ever went to as a young kid was Rich Mullins, and he had a friend named Beaker that would travel around with him. And I remember just kind of thinking it was odd because Rich Mullins was up there without any shoes or socks on, and he'd sit at his piano and just play. And he actually forgot some of his lyrics and music during the time because he was just, he was up there worshiping, and he wasn't even thinking about, you know, the specifics of what he was was supposed to be doing. But that was my first uh, experience. That was not a song that he forgot the lyrics to. Um, But I did do remember him singing that. Um, song Awesome God during that con- concert. Uh, do you remember the first time you saw something through a child's eyes? Everything to a child looks so big and fascinating. The first time you take a kid to the zoo. And they experience the animals in actual size. They see a real-life elephant or the lion or the giraffe. And they realize they aren't this little bitty character on the TV anymore. That they're unpredictable. The immensity of the animals. I remember taking our girls to their first parade. And them hearing all of the sounds and the vehicles, there was some fear there. And sometimes these first experiences, there's not only wonder, but there's fear. Uh, Going to a playground, seeing the tall slide that goes, you, 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 all the way down. They tentatively go up the steps, and then they get scared about halfway up or at the top, and then they decide they're going to come back down. There was Ellie the first time we took her to a lake, and it was you set her down, and her legs just go, whoop. <laughs> she didn't want to touch the lake. She didn't want to go into the water, and some kids do that with grass, too. They just don't like the feel of grass, and so you go to set them down, their legs just go, whoop, <laughs> just straight up. But there is a wonder you see during some of these moments that kids experience and we witness that as adults whether they're your your children or family you get to witness some of those things we're working through our series called everyday worship and there are certain topics uh, that can be harder as a pastor to explain or that are much broader than I'm able to always communicate. Worship is one of those topics that's difficult to discuss. Not only is it a vast topic, but every person can experience worship in a little bit different way because of how they worship, because of how they grew up. I I liked what uh, Warren Wearsby said he made this, this comment in his commentary. He said, our problem, of course, is that we are finite humans seeking to understand an infinite God and then to express to him, to God, our praise in words that are severely limited because of our finiteness. So not only do we have a hard time 
understanding who God is because we are finite and he is infinite, but we also have a hard time, a difficult time of communicating that back to him. One of the ways we do that is through music. Music has a way of bridging that gap at times, but there are things about God, there are things about worship that are not going to be able to be fully understood on this side of heaven. To a degree, I think, I think there's an amount of fear that can come in even trying to tackle the topic of worship. We can become apprehensive because I, I realize that what I'm going to talk about through these several weeks is probably only going to scratch the surface of worship. But I'm hoping that in scratching the surface of worship, it gives you that desire to continually learn more about worship. Last week we talked about this definition of worship. This was given by Warren Wiersbe. Uh, it says, worship is the believer's response of all that they are. The mind, emotions, will, and body to what God is and says and does. And so it's our response to who God is, what he does, and what he says. As I mentioned last week, the Bible's primary focus is about God. It describes God to us. It describes God's actions and his character. But secondarily, the Bible's purpose would be to describe worship for us. I would guess that worship is found in every book of the Bible. Some of it is improper worship. And how the nation of Israel would worship God and then they would fall and they would worship other idols. I think specifically of the book of Judges, the circular motion of we are led by someone who leads us towards God. And so we worship God and then eventually we forget and then we start worshiping these other things until this cycle completes itself. I believe there are some essentials when it comes to worship, and one of those we're going to look at this morning comes from the book of John, John chapter 4, and it's a familiar story, but as I was looking at this this week, I realized there's a verse here that we tend to just jump across. We, we don't really dive in and, and look at what this actually means and maybe some of the implications. Jesus is traveling with his disciples. A lot of Jesus' ministry in, in the area of where Israel is located, he would travel from area to area and speak and teach. Some of them were areas where he had family or friends. And, and the Bible tells us that Jesus was going on one of these trips. He was leaving Judea, the area of Judea, and departing for Galilee. That's John chapter 4, verse 3. Judea being in the southern portion, he was making his way north. 
into the area of Galilee. And, and verse 4 tells us he had to pass through Samaria. Well, let me tell you, there are a lot of routes to go from Judea to Galilee, and most of them that the Jews would have chosen would not have gone through Samaria. They did not like the Samaritans. The Jews hated the Samaritans because of what they believed, because of their lineage. There were many reasons, but they would avoid it at all costs. And so a lot of times they would travel to one side or the other, trying to avoid Samaria as much as possible. And so the Bible's making a point here that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. There was a purpose there, and it goes into what that purpose is. We find out it's around noon that this is happening. The Bible says it's the sixth hour, which is about noon, that Jesus is traveling and comes to this city, this town of Samaria, verse 5, called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, and there's a well there. And Jesus sits down at the well. We learn later his disciples went into the city to maybe get some food, get some supplies as they're traveling. If, if they'd been traveling for six hours, we know that that's probably why it says here that Jesus was tired. It says, verse 6, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. Jesus was human. He felt some of these needs. We're going to pick up in verse 7 of our text, John chapter 4. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then in parentheses, it says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. John's just trying to make sure we get the context across here. For Jews have no dealings with Samaria, verse 10. Jesus answered her. Now, think here. Jesus is going to be talking in a spiritual language. She's going to be understanding in a physical language. So get that in your minds, that Jesus is going to be saying something spiritual, and she's not going to get it. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman, again, thinking in a physical context, said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Thinking in physical terms. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, spiritual, will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. What is she still thinking in? The physical. 
give me this water so I don't have to come back here every day and go through this task, go through this chore of getting water and carrying it back physically, right? Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman, verse 17, answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She's starting to get it. Jesus is not just this guy who's coming and sitting there. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you, you being the Jewish people, say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So the Samaritans believed the spot of worship was there in Samaria, the mountain there. It's near the city where they're talking, and so they might have been able to look up and she might have been referencing, like, we believe we worship here. You see, the Samaritans only believed part of the scripture. They believed the part that told them that worship was in that area. The Jewish people took the whole of, of the Old Testament and said Jerusalem is the place where worship, where David and, and Solomon created the, the temple there. And so she's going back and she's saying, well, what, what do you believe about this? You're having this conversation with me. You're a prophet. What's true? Jesus said to her, verse 21, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, the one right there, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, talking about the Jews again, for salvation is from the Jews. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, Am he. So Jesus is having this conversation with this Samaritan woman. The verse I want to zoom in on is verse 24. It says, God is spirit, and those who worship him, what's the word there? My Bible says, must. Must worship in spirit and truth. There's some wonder in our worship, but one of the specifics of our worship, one of the, I think, essentials that Jesus gives to us here is that worship is not going to be located in a place. It's going to now be in spirit and in truth. And there is a must in that. We must worship in spirit. Uh, the first question that is raised as I was thinking about this is, what does the term spirit mean? Does this mean our spirit as, as we are beings, body, soul, mind, spirit, 
we are spiritual beings, God created us with a spirit, is, is that talking about, is Jesus talking there about our spirit, or is he referencing the Holy Spirit? I had a professor when I was in college, and he would always say, ah, that's, that's one of those both-and situations. That's what he would always say. And I think this is one of those times where, yes, we must worship in spirit, and I'm going to talk a little bit about this, but in order for us to worship in our finite spirit, we need the power and strength of the Holy Spirit. So I think it's working together. It is only by the Holy Spirit's transformative power that we're able to worship in our human spirit. The Holy Spirit has many roles. If you look in the New Testament and how the Holy Spirit how is described, His role is regeneration, conviction of sin, empowering believers with gifts. He testifies to us that we are God's children. He is leading us. He makes us fruitful in developing those fruits in our lives. He grants and nurtures resurrection life in us. He intercedes in prayer for us. He guides us into truth. And he is transforming us into the image of Christ. There is this work that the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives on our behalf that helps our spirits be able to worship God. See, our regenerated spirit, because of the work that's being done, is made to be able to approach a holy God in worship, and our finite worship is made acceptable to an infinite God through the power and work of the Holy Spirit. It's a both-and situation. The second must of worship, you've probably already written it down, but we must worship in spirit and truth. So it is now a spiritual thing that we're worshiping God. And so when we sing songs, we sing them with our voices, but it's our spirit then coming up and, and proclaiming these things. But we also worship in truth. Cindy and I were talking this morning about worship, and one of the important factors of our musical worship is that it corresponds in truth with God's word. That we're not just singing fluffy choruses. That the things that we're singing about there are the things that are being talked about in here. And so we must worship in spirit and in truth. I think the aspect that the Holy Spirit is working alongside of our spirit and there is this connection there in how we worship, I think that should give us wonder. 
like the little child standing at the edge of the beach looking out at the vast water in front of them in awe that they can't see the other side. However, I think as we dive into the aspect of truth, we're going to see even more awe and wonder. And the passage I want to look at is Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. If you have your Bibles... Flip back from John, back to Isaiah. We're going to spend most of our time, rest of our time in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, we've referenced these verses before. This shouldn't be new to you, but I hope hope it gives you maybe a new light. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, now we don't know if King Uzziah is living or not, but it is the year that he died that, he, that Isaiah is witnessing this, and it's a contrast between the throne that's going to be empty for the nation of Israel and the throne of God that is never empty. Okay, so Isaiah is referencing the year that King Uzziah died. He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Recognize that Isaiah here is witnessing something far beyond what he's ever seen before. Verse 2, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Isaiah said, Here I am, send me. I think Isaiah 6, 1 through 8 gives us some truths about worship that we can settle on. The first one is a truth about God. It's truth about God. God. Isaiah is describing God using the best language that he can of the time. He is attempting to describe the indescribable. God is sitting on the throne. The train of his robe is filling the temple. The seraphim are flying. He he describes them with their wings and they're flying around and they're proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Are they saying it three times because there's a trinity or are they saying it three times because God's holiness cannot be expressed with just one holy? 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah experiences the foundation of the thresholds just shaking. He experiences hearing a voice and the house, the area there is just filled with smoke. There was a truth that Isaiah saw, heard, and experienced in the reality of God. In the Psalms, we're often given pictures of who God is. The psalmists quite often give us these descriptions of God. I listed several of them on your, your handouts there. I'm going to read Psalm 97. I don't want you to turn there. I just want you to listen. Psalm 97. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord. Before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the people see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame. Who makes their boast in worthless idols? Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad. And the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. You who love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Psalm 97. I think when we come into these psalms, I think when we read his word, I think often we just kind of gloss over it. We don't think about the clouds and thick darkness that are all around him. We don't think about the righteousness and justice as the foundation of his throne. We don't think about the fire going before him. We serve a dangerous God. We serve a glorious God. We serve a holy God who can only have proclaimed about him, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. So often we lighten the description of who God is. And the God in our minds is this soft, cuddly God who he is the father that we can go to. There is also an element of fear, I think, that's important. We can go to God, we can go boldly to his throne, but we have to understand who is sitting on that throne. In order for us to have a proper encounter of worship with God, we have to go to the truth 
of his word to understand who he is. One of the authors I was reading, it, reading this week talked about it this way. In Genesis chapter 3, God's glory was eclipsed. When you think of eclipses, whether it's a solar eclipse or a lunar eclipse, the power of the sun has not changed. The temperature of the sun does not change. The position, the, the fact that the moon exists did, does not change. Something comes in between those that we, we do not see them the same. And there's an element about God's glory that when Genesis 3 happened, God's glory was eclipsed from our view. And then the rest of the Bible begins to reveal God's glory to those, to the nation of Israel, to Abraham, to, to Moses, to, to other authors. You see, the eclipse of God's glory did not change God's glory. It changed our perception of God's glory. Because of sin, man's perception or view of God's glory has been altered. And we get to Acts chapter 7. New Testament, looking back on the Old Testament, Stephen is standing there. He's about to be stoned for what he believes. He's describing Jesus through the Old Testament. And he makes this comment in Acts chapter 7, verse 2. He says, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. God begins to shine his glory and the eclipse begins to go away as we read scripture, as we dive into the truth of who God is. And then John talks about it this way, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We witness his glory. We have to look to his word for truth. Secondly, we have to look for the truth about humanity. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 5, Isaiah comes to this conclusion and I said, Woe is me for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah has to come to this realization that God is completely pure and holy and he is not. It is because he witnesses God's purity and God's holiness that in light of all of that, he realizes he is not holy. He is not pure. And it's much like Paul says in Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah realizes that sinfulness and that wickedness. The fact is we are all imperfect and fallen and it's in the spotlight of God's glory, in the spotlight of his truth that we recognize our own fallenness and our own wickedness. But we're not left there. Isaiah wasn't left there. 
Thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have because we have a truth about atonement. There's truth about God, truth about humanity, truth about atonement. Verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hands a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. What is the altar? What was the altar in the Old Testament? It was where the sacrifice was made. What is the burning coal? It is a remnant of the sacrifice. The lamb has burnt up, the dove has burnt up, the the offering has burnt up, and there is a coal there, a remnant of the sacrifice that the seraphim take off, and he touches Isaiah's lips with it, cleansing him. It says, he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. There's a truth about atonement. We have no ability on our own to provide atonement for ourselves. For the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. Proverbs 14.12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. If we are left on our own, we are spiritually and physically going to die out of our own devices. But praise the Lord, we have hope because of atonement, because of what God has done. The verse I started earlier, for the wages of sin is death, greatest verse in the Bible because the hope, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're not left in our death. We are brought spiritually back to life, eternal life because of Christ Jesus. Because of the hope we're given in Him. In the book of Revelation, John has an encounter with Jesus Christ, much like Isaiah. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, John sees this. He says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe. Where have we seen a robe before? Isaiah chapter 6. With a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. Again, trying to describe the indescribable. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. John, who had been a disciple of Jesus, who was one of Jesus' closest friends, witnesses the resurrected Jesus, and in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead because he witnessed Jesus Christ in his glory but he said he laid his right hand on me picture of redemption picture of atonement picture of acceptance he laid his right hand on me saying fear not I am the first And the last and the living one, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. There's a truth about atonement.
Christ's death and resurrection was the final act that was needed to supply atonement for our sins. He paid the price for our sins. His sacrifice is the coal that was placed on our lips that saves us. Not done on our, on our work at all. He purifies our lives, takes away our guilt, and atones for our sins. The final truth about worship is a truth about service. It's a truth about service. Worship isn't meant to leave us just in wonder, although that's a great place to be. Verse 8, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? This is kind of like in the garden. God comes and, Adam, where are you? And Isaiah recognizes he needs to respond and he says, here I am, send me. You see, the response of our worship should lead us into willingness to serve. There are ways we can serve individually, serving God, serving our fellow Christians. Maybe that's praying for one another. Maybe that's serving by being an encourager, writing a card, calling them, sending a note, whatever it is. There's ways we can serve corporately. Whether it's helping with technology, teaching a Sunday school class, helping with nursery or in kids ministry, being a teacher there. Uh, It's up on stage here with worship. It's being out there and, and wholeheartedly singing. That's part of service. When Jesus was Right before he begins his ministry, the Bible tells us he goes into the wilderness and the devil tempts him three different times. And one of the times the devil tempts him, he promises to give Jesus all authority and glory if Jesus will worship him. Just bow down and worship me and I will give you all glory. But Jesus responds in this way. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. There's this link between worship and service. And Jesus is saying, There's only one that you should worship. Worship the Lord your God. And if you're worshiping the Lord your God, service is going to follow. The two are linked together. These two disciplines, I don't know that they can be separated. Service is an act of worship, and the outcome of worship should be service. Warren Wiersbe talks about, he he speaks a lot, and he talks about the churches he goes into. And one of the things he sees at some of the churches is a sign in the back. And it says, enter to worship, depart to serve. And he makes a comment about that I thought was very applicable to this morning. He says, if in our worship we have sensed the holiness and the glory of God, we've sensed that through his word, if we have felt the joy of sins forgiven, recognizing the redemption that Christ has done on our behalf, then we are ready to go out to serve him, no matter how difficult the task 
See, just the mere experience of encountering God through His Word should captivate our hearts and our minds. It should leave us stunned by the magnificence and the awe of His goodness and mercy. We should be like children entering the fair and we hear all the sights and the sounds and the smells and we experience who He is. We experience the wonder of who God is, but our worship shouldn't leave us in wonder. Although wonder is a great place to be. Stay there for a while. But our worship should lead us from wonder to service. Should empower us to go out and serve Him. Let's pray. Father, God, we recognize that there are times in our life where maybe we come in here, we come into a place in our hearts that we aren't in wonder. God, we aren't at a spot where we're amazed at who you are. God, I pray that through the truth of your word, through recognizing your power and might, that there would be a sense of holy wonder. That we would come to a spot where all we can proclaim is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. We recognize our sinfulness, but we find great hope in your redemption. The promises that you are faithful to keep. That you are faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, may that wonder push us out to serve you more and more every day. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.